Hey everybody, Michael Rosso here, and this is part three of our interview with Sam Sherman. I'm here with Leslie Lazenby. Hello everyone. And Mark O'Brien. Hey there. Sam goes into great detail of his Kiev cameras, the Kiev line, what he recommends there. Some great recommendations of some folks and websites of people who still deal with these cameras. And a lot of other great stories. This is part three. This is the, currently the last of our series, but we hope to get Sam back because we feel like we just tapped the tip of the iceberg of what Sam knows about film photography. We just scratched the surface, I'm sure. Right. If any folks out there want to know who invented Lomography, I'm not going to say anything. I like when Sam hits us with his quiz questions. I know. Yeah. So yes. anyone? 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 Bueller? Bueller? I was like, raising my hand. I know this one. I know this one. Pick me, pick me. Teacher, teacher, teacher. Here's Sam. You had mentioned earlier about uh, you writing a book, and I was going to ask you, are you in the process of going through your some of your old negatives and slides, and will they be scanned to digital to be used in the book? And maybe you just give a little overview. What is the book? I have a publisher. book is about uh, my adventures with my company, Independent International, and my partner, Al Adamson, my other partner, Dan Kennis. And uh, it's called When Dracula Met Frankenstein. So it's kind of about the movie we made, Dracula vs. Frankenstein, which is our best-known film. So it's called When Dracula Met Frankenstein. And in doing that, uh, we I've gotten that book to over 600 pages, and I've had to cut it back. And in cutting it back, I've decided to bifurcate it into two books, when Dracula met Frankenstein, and then uh, my own uh, story, there are a lot of things that are not independent and not Al Adamson. And I took it out to put it in my own book, just about my adventures in the movie business. And that I'm calling Adventures in Hollywood. So it's two books. And uh, yeah, I'm looking, a lot of my uh, photos have been scanned in to one of my computers. So I've taken out those files and I'm looking for other ones here but as I've moved a lot of them have been packed away and I've got to find them yeah there are things I can find there's a lot of interesting stuff there and I do my own scans I can do a reasonable scan and a lot of interesting things but I don't want to go too far afield I've got to decide which book it goes in for those people who are the the gearheads in in our audience um how many cameras would you say you still have in your collection? Oh, a couple of hundred, not too many. Okay, not too many. <clears throat> Hear that, Adrian? Not too many. I have them in different groups. My main use when I was very active in photography was twin lens reflexes and uh, two and a quarter single lens reflexes. So that includes Bronicas. I have a number of modified Kiev cameras. They're non-original Kievs. Except, uh, I mean, Kiev 88. I do have Kiev 60 and its predecessor, Kiev 6. I have Pentagon 6, which I like. Pentagon 6 had another offshoot called Hanamex Practica 66. And what that was, was a Pentagon 6 made in East Germany, upgraded, again, that word upgraded, for the Hanamex company, which was Australian. And uh, people didn't believe that there was a difference. I said, well, it's just a nameplate. No, I had read that the camera was really upgraded because the Pentagon 6 had some problems, that they wanted the cameras to work, and they would not repair them, Hanamex company, unless it had their uh, label on it. I mean, it's the exact same camera as Pentagon 6, but there's a wonderful website, pentagon6.com, S-I-X in there, done by a fellow... But they have Trevor Allen, who's a British fellow, lives in Spain. Great website. And Trevor Allen, I've been in touch with him for many years. He's just a great guy and he really knows his stuff. And uh, he's very big on Pentagon 6. Uh, some of the early ones had the same problems as the Russian cameras, or Soviet or Ukrainian, of rough gears, not properly lubricated. Uh, when those cameras are 
properly set up, properly lubricated and clean and all that, they're capable of very good work. And they had the advantage of having uh, Carl Zeiss Jena lenses from East Germany, which were great lenses. And uh, I've used those for a lot of work. It was very, very good. Cameras I liked, two and a quarter SLR, two and a quarter TLR, some 35 millimeter, very big on exacta. 35 millimeter. I have a lot of those. I have a, a little odd collection in my collection of what I call the poor man's poor cameras. Little cameras and cameras that shouldn't be too great, but maybe work well. Others that don't work that well, but you might get interesting results from them. And uh, my opinion is every camera that's capable of creating an image can create an interesting image. I always have liked to have the cheaper alternative. In other words, well, Bronica is kind of an imitation Hasselblad. Well, Bronica is capable of equivalent work to Hasselblad. People never knew it. Why? Because Bronica had a defect. And the defect was Bronica cameras, focal plane cameras, that had great lenses from Nikon, incredible great lenses. But the viewing screens in the finder had a spring underneath that pressed it up out of the sharp focus zone and hit a kind of um, foam that was there, and the foam would compress. So as it pushed it into the foam, slowly, slowly over time, the viewing screen would be out of focus. Now when you focus... You're not focusing on the true position or infinity true position. So I had the same Model C that I mentioned buying in uh, in Olden's, and I really like it. And I brought back a roll of film from the lab. I want to mention a great lab. Get a plug-in for them. I use them here. I want to encourage people to use them. They're called Elco, E-L-C-O, Color Lab. They're now in Manalpa, New Jersey, right off Route 33, which is about 10 minutes from my house. And I've been using that lab. They moved to where they are now, but I've been using them for over 30 years. They do digital. They do transparencies. They do sheet film. They do two and a quarter. Everything great. The prices are very fair, and they're real nice people. That's the place to go. Anyway, so I uh, took this roll of film I shot with my Bronica Model C to Elko, got it back. The whole roll was out of focus, saying, what is this? I'm looking at the camera, looking at it. It took me a long time to figure out this compression of of the finder foam, and then I figured out a way to remedy it, and I figured it out, and I did it, and then I checked my other Bronica cameras. They all had that problem. Well, I went back into Popular Photography magazine and Modern Photography, and they were reviewing Bronica cameras with great Nikon lenses. And instead of the lenses being rated super excellent, which they are, they're rated good, average, this, oh. that. So they always had that problem. So I went ahead and did a big write-up for the Bronica site, which doesn't exist anymore, but there are many people who have saved it on how to remedy this problem. And people all over the world still write to me. They're doing it. They've done it. they saved it. What great cameras those Bronica cameras are, but people didn't know it because of this little defect. So my comment is defective cameras can be fixed. They can be made to work. Light leaks can be plugged, etc., etc. But be careful what you're fixing because even something that doesn't work can be great. Now, how is that? I read this article. I love (laughs) British photography magazines. The British are big photography advocates. And I read this article about a woman who has an old folding camera and she's used it to take spirit photos. She goes to old castles and old houses and there you see a picture or whatever. And there's that spirit in the background. It's incredible. So she takes her camera to the local camera store to be fixed, cleaned, repaired, gets it back, takes beautiful pictures, but the spirits are gone. Yeah. And she goes back and blames them. Now she's 
you've taken away the power of my spirit camera. It doesn't work anymore. He says, all I did was plug the light leaks in the bellows. Well, I still think and it's. And I photographed a church with it the first time I had it, and it had all the spirits in it. Well, I happen to yeah, believe. I got a good one here. I happen to believe that that's a good thing. Never take your spirit camera in to be repaired. Uh-huh. That's a good thing. That's look at look at Lomography. Now look at Lomography. Now who started Lomography? Who would like to guess? And on this panel, who started Lomography? Uh, that would be Sam Sherman. Me. Of course, of course, course. I got a sample of the little original Lomo 35mm camera. Nobody wanted it. The factory, which was not the Kiev factory, but was in St. Petersburg, Lomo, Leningrad, Optical and Mechanical, whatever it is. Lomo is a great company that made great microscopes. I wanted to import their microscopes. People already did. They made, and probably still make them, make great lenses, they make great everything. I got this little black and white Lomo. I bought samples of them for $5 each from the factory. (laughs) Brand new. And I started using them. And they were actually a copy, an exact copy of a Cosina camera. They were not an original camera. No one knew the Cosina. I started using them and they were just great. And I couldn't interest anybody in it. I said, here's the thing to do. This is like having... A photo notebook. Take it in your pocket wherever you go. Cover everything you do. People now have cell phones. They don't do it. But I was pushing and pushing and pushing. Nobody wanted them. Nobody ever. But great minds think alike. Somebody, I think, in um, they were in Vienna or someplace like that. They had the same idea. And they eventually bought that part of the factory that made those cameras. And then they went with the website that all kinds of low-end cameras, the same theory, low-end cameras can take interesting pictures. So in my low-end collection, I have Argus A, (laughs) Argus AB, Argus AF, which takes a flash, which is the Model A with a flash, and other cameras. And the one I'm working on, if I can ever get to fix it, is the Perfex camera. It's a copy of the Leica and Contax focal plane shutter. Those cameras never worked. I'd find them in junk bins for $5. They sell broken today. They never work. There's something wrong in the gearing of the shutter or something. And yet, in defense of the perfects, the very first atom bomb test in Trinity, and it's online, you can find it, was taken with a Perfex camera. Unbelievable the most maligned cameras take interesting pictures. The Perfex camera. So I want to learn how to get in there, lubricate and fix it, and use the Perfex camera. And others like that. Now there's a camera like the Perfex called the Claris. Oh, yeah, C- I was just going to mention C-L-A-R-U-S. I now, talked about it on the show. Claris was made somewhere in the Midwest, Michigan or someplace like that. Okay, Milwaukee. And they had an ad in a 1948 magazine, which I got when I was eight years old. And it was an interesting ad. It's two cameras on a bracket, a Claris and a Leica, shooting racehorses at a race. And they said no difference in the quality between camera A, maybe they didn't say Leica, and the Claris. And I'm looking at that, and I've had that for later years. I'm saying, what a joke! The Claris is a piece of junk like the Perfects. It could never work, and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. Well, I had to find out that that ad was right. The Claris was capable of incredible work, capable of it, but nobody knew it. Now, they had two models. Their first model and the first model didn't have flash sync. Second model with flash sync, and the way you can tell them apart is the first model has a cast accessory shoe. You can see it's cast metal. The second model has a stamped metal accessory shoe, which is screwed onto the camera. Most that I have examined of the second model work perfectly. And 
even though the lens seems like nothing, the standard lens is a 50mm Wallensack lens. I took Kodachrome slides with that. Razor sharp. Focal plane shutter works perfectly. So if anyone wants to have a good working Claris, get a nice clean Model 2 with the so you have model one I have a model one but i have a few of each no it doesn't work <laughs> well, it doesn't work mine well, does not it can be no. made to work but it's too expensive to do but if you get the model two it will work right out of the box I how's mean, that for audience? when you look at it excuse me when you look at that camera this is like it was cut out of a piece of aluminum it's got to be great it, it it's an interesting camera it is but, good but it, it is, is. So I have a good working Model 2, and I have a few other odds and ends, ones that don't work and stuff like that, parts. and But I've never really gotten into it. But they're very similar to the Perfects, and I think the Perfects can be made to work. It's just a, a dream of mine. And a lot of these other little cameras, like Spartus. Oh, yeah. Spartus. Now, Spartus is what you'd call a 35-millimeter plastic box camera. Box camera kind of lens and shutter. It looks like nothing. And then they made a very rare F3.5 model. Well, the regular one is an F8 or F7.7. And there's a company that was in Los Angeles called Craftex. They made the lens and shutter unit for the 3.5 model. And what does it have? It has an F3.5 coated lens. It has a 150th to 150th adjustable shutter. But where the other cheap one has flash sync, this has no flash sync. But the 3.5 model is very, very rare. And I have a few of those, and I've been anxious to get them to work and see what it would do. But also interested to see the F7.7 what does it do? And every place I read about it, it's much maligned. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've taken photographs with, with a, a couple of different Spartuses over the years. They weren't, results were nothing special. But were they awful? Um, I wouldn't call them awful, but if you compared it with like a disposable camera results, I mean, it's a huge difference because the lenses weren't. You know, they, what, F7 or F8, something like that. And you get, you might get them to be a little dreamy. So, you know, they have an effect, like you say, interesting. Yeah, they can be interesting. I never shot a picture with a Spartus, but when I got my uh, Vitar camera, which is far superior to all those Spartus cameras, I uh, did get a slide projector because I wanted to project my slides from CameraCraft and it was a Spartus projector. Now, it's very few people know that Spartus made a projector, or they took over a projector, the same exact model, known as Voigt, V-O-I-G-T, like Voigtlander, well, that's pronounced Voigtlander in German, but Voigt, V-O-I-G-T, became the Spartus projector, and I used it for many years. It's not a great projector, but certainly it had a unique smell, though. It's made oh, they, very... I thought it was going to burn up. No, no, it's probably the paint. It's an odd paint of some kind. But we got it brand new from CameraCraft, came in the original box, sealed and everything. They had to order it. So I'm still working on what I call these low-end cameras that could take a good picture. Now, there is a model that on viewing it, you'd say, is a low-end camera, but it's not. And it's the Kodak Signet. Not Signet 35, not Signet 40. It's Kodak Signet with a very high-quality Ektar lens. Now, there's a book that's uh, a book about 35-millimeter cameras. It's a yellow cover. Um, is that the one by Bailey and LaHue, I think? Yeah. American 35mm? Calton LaHue. He was a movie uh, historian. He's passed away. But he wrote that book. Okay, yeah, yeah I've got a copy. Yeah, but it's interesting. If you go in and uh, read about the uh, uh, Kodak uh, Signet, they claimed it had the best lens and such and such and such and high, whatever it was. And uh, it is good. I did test it. I still have mine. 
But I also have a feeling, if that was so good, maybe the Kodak Pony 35 is not bad. I have one. You know about that? Oh, I used to have a a Pony. Actually, I still have a Pony 838. And then I have the Pony 35, which is basically the same camera, but it takes 35 millimeter. And that Aniston lens, in fact, I'm going to be talking about it in in an upcoming um, show, comparing the Pony 35 with the Argus 40. I think the Pony's a better camera by far. But they, I've shot a few rolls of color film with that, and they look great. So it's yeah, I have a feeling that Kodak wouldn't make bad cameras because they sold the film. They didn't want a bad reputation. So I have, I, I have, I don't know if somebody gave me a pony. I don't know where. I was just going to throw it out, but I've been looking at it. It seems to me, uh, it's a nice camera. Now one problem with it right away is front element focusing. Any camera that has front element focusing cannot be as good as unit focusing, the entire lens moving at once, but it has front element focusing. But I've never used it, but yet I have to think it might not be bad. Well, it also, um, the front, the whole front telescopes out, yes. and just like the a bunch of other cameras of, of, its, of that period, but then so did the retinas too, and, and retinettes. But the uh, but no the Aniston lens in that camera I think it's an uh, maybe f four point five I yes. think that's that's perfectly adequate and it, it's coated and takes good photographs. Well, if you're taking outdoor pictures at f eight or lower, who needs more? Yeah, I, so I think it's a good thing. All the study of the low end cameras, low end thirty five millimeter and. Low end uh, 120. I think it's a good study. If you haven't just got a different film in, but you're going to go out for maybe a family or an event or something like that, and you're going to grab your go-to camera. What's your go-to camera today? What I've been using as a go-to camera uh, quite, quite a lot in later years is Minolta. <laughs> Minolta... Minolta XE7, which is also the Leica R3. Yes, it is. I've taken that all over. It's a really great camera. And uh, I was at uh, Edwards Air Force Base, uh, and I was with one of the, uh, what should I call them? I call officers of the base. Took me on a private tour. Hard to get. And uh, we even went to the classified area, and he took some shots with my camera. He says, I have the same camera. <laughs> he liked it a lot. I believe, I think, the uh, XD11 was the last of not, the... No, no, not the uh, 11. The XE7. Right, but I think the 11 was the last of the line of the Minolta Leica friendship, I believe. Well, those are the, uh, other yeah. Minolta, the other uh, Leica ones. They're, they're the... Uh, the Leica R4. These are the Leica R3. Uh, they're very good, and they can develop a problem. After all these years I've had it, I've developed a problem there. The full aperture metering and some something gumming up on the potentiometers, either in the lens or in the uh, setting, the meter settings. Now, another good Minolta camera I like is the Minolta XK, which is kind of the Minolta attempt to make a uh, a Nikon F. And it's quite a good camera, but I don't consider it as good as the the one they made in conjunction with Leica, which was the XE7. Well, the other one... Next week, it'll fall in my hands, and away we go. Well, I'll tell you the difference. The difference is the um, the XE5, the XE, and the XE7 all have a Copal shutter that was devised for Leica for the R3. It's an incredible, great shutter. It's a multi-blade focal plane shutter. To me, I think that's the best focal plane shutter on any camera. Always accurate, doesn't jam up. Where there are similar shutters on Practica, later models, and other cameras, they tend to get oil and the blades jam up. This thing never jams up. 
It's always accurate. It's a great shutter. Really, really great. The previous model they were experimenting with, which is the uh, XK, also known as the X1 or the XM, has an imitation Nikon F shutter, which is a focal plane shutter of two curtains. That's a titanium two curtains that move horizontally, where the other ones are multi-blades that move vertically. Not that it's a bad shutter on the uh, XK. I just don't think it's as good. I think the other one is an improvement. And also the problem with the XK is also in the uh, exposure meter portion of the prism. Some oxidation, oil vapor, whatever, gets in there and uh, causes the problem of the contact between one side of the metering system and the other. In other words, in the metering system, you have a bunch of metallic lines, and then you have a probe that goes across them, either straight or turning. Now, if there's anything on this probe or on those lines, oxidation, oil, vapor, dirt, anything, then when you see through the finder, the meter needle, it will jump. It will jump. So any camera you have that, where you have that jump, that's dirt on the meter probe and the the basic uh, part of the meter. My own opinion is all these things can be fixed. The problem is at what cost? You know, a lot of these cameras today, nothing, and they could be bought for under $25, but fixing them could be $200. It's just not worth it. And that's, that's the problem with these things. I've learned to repair a lot of things myself. I have a technical background. I've learned to open things courageously and go in and not destroy them and fix them. My greatest achievement in repairing cameras is the repair of the Primar Flex. The Primar Flex is a two and a quarter SLR that looks like the Hasselblad that the Hasselblad was copied from. They're always broken. And I was interested in having one because I used to see their ads in the magazine. It looked like an interesting camera to have. And whenever I would find one, broken. Whenever I'd go to a repair tech, can't fix it. That was before Ken Ruth, who could have fixed it, and maybe a couple of others. Nobody could do it. So I decided I bought several broken ones. I'll open them up and see what the problem is. The problem is when you wind, it's a knob wind, it winds a two and a quarter focal plane shutter cloth curtain. Sometimes those curtains could dry out, sometimes not. But if they do, forget it. They got to be replaced and I can't replace them. It's work. The other concept is the way the camera works is when you wind, there's a gear sandwich, two gears that are sandwiched together with a something in the middle that holds them. So the way it works is you wind it and these two gears turn together. They're each for one curtain of the focal plane shutter. One winds the first curtain, one winds the second curtain. So as you're turning it and you're winding it, as it's getting wound, the two gears don't turn together, they slip. Well, why is that? I always ask, if something doesn't work, why is that? Well, oil has gotten on the two gears, and instead of them moving together, pulling up each curtain, one is slipping against the other, and one is winding, and one is winding, but the other one is not. So one thing comes up, the other one stays down. That's the basic problem. So I took the thing apart, took these parts out, and I said, well, I want to be able to make those gears not slip like that. Well, it's a very hard thing to do because they were kind of compressed together. So I just decided, I don't care what happens, let's take a shot. So I put it on my anvil on my work table. I took a little we call peen ball hammer and I tapped the center to compress it. Now by compressing it, those things, they, they will slip enough to lock it up in the final position, but they won't slip so that they turn against each other. Okay. So I figured that out. Then I said, I'm going to write a repair text. So I went ahead and I shot 
pictures of all the parts, of all the stuff. And then I went ahead and Xeroxed it, put it together, wrote notes, and I wrote a little repair text. And then anybody that was interested in this, because I wrote about it in different places, I would send them my repair text so they'd learn how to fix it. But today we have better repairmen. They know what the problem is. They can fix it. But it's a good camera. So I had a number. I got rid of the bigger collection. But I've got one that works and one that's waiting for this repair. But it's a good camera, the Primar Flex. And as I said, it is Spired, Hasselblad, Bronica, Mamiya 645. All those cameras that look similar are all based on the Primar Flex, also known as Primar Reflex. So it's a study of a lot of weird things you will probably find nowhere else than right here. What am I doing lately? I shot pictures of Buddy with Connie, with Connie Flex. That's a two and a quarter TLR made by Konica, and that needed some repair, but it works all right. And a camera I highly recommend for two and a quarter users, but it's become outpriced, is the Caloflex made by Kowa, K-O-W-A. And uh, those would be $50. They're now three, four, five dollars $500. But it's a very good twin lens reflex. And I've also uh, been uh, working on Norita 66. Ooh. Anyone know that? Those are pretty cameras. Uh, it's a copy of the Pentagon 6. And um, also known as the Ritrek and the Warner. It's a copy of the Pentagon 6. And the difference is... It has instant return mirror, which the Pentagon 6 does not have, and it has its own unique mount and lenses, hard to find, hard to get. The other thing that's interesting is adapting lenses for purposes they weren't intended for. That's something I'm interested in. I like adapting them for two and a quarter. So one thing I found is that in order to adapt a lens for two and a quarter, the lens must throw a circle wider than two and a quarter. Now, most lenses for two and a quarter are very expensive. Kilfit, Astro Berlin, other ones, they're expensive lenses. It's a, you know, a thousand, two thousand dollars for that. I, I want to pay ten dollars. I don't want to pay that. So the question is, what can you adapt? Well, the cheapest telephoto lenses that are around have all been made in Japan, and their different companies have made them to similar specs, but not the same. They are f6.3, 400-millimeter telephoto lenses. Most of them came in T-mounts, preset, any 35-millimeter camera would use them. Well, who would dream that you could use that on two and a quarter? You'd say, that's not possible. There's no way you could do that. So it's necessary for me to disprove that. Okay. And the answer is to examine the Kilfit telephoto lenses and learn how they work and similar lenses. And these lenses of anywhere from 300 to 1,200 millimeter, many of them are only one or two elements. You say, how could that be? So what are they? They're a doublet at the front and a long empty tube. Well, I got a lens like that, and I'm saying, I want to return it. It's missing the rear element. <laughs> the answer is, there was no rear element. It was just a doublet at the front and a long, empty tube. So then I began to look and examine these cheap F63 400-millimeter telephoto lenses, T-mount, and see that they were a doublet at the front and a doublet at the back. Now, you wonder, why is that? Well, the doublet at the back has a reason, because what it does is it takes the doublet at the front image and it makes it sharp edge to edge. That's what you need on 35, yeah. sharp edge to edge. So I'm saying, okay, I got that. What if I go ahead and take out that rear doublet? Maybe I'll have a lens much like the Kilfit lenses that are long telephoto lenses that are only a doublet in the front. So I started buying these lenses for uh, $10, $15, $5. They were nothing, a lot of different ones. Taking the doublet out at the end, putting something else in the mount in there, 
My first experiment was not on a Japanese lens, but on a German lens. And it was a German lens that I bought for $39. It was F4.5, F400 millimeter. And it was made by a German company called Piescar, P-I-E-S-K-E-R, also known as Votar. I'm saying I'd like to have a telephoto lens for the Pentagon 6. But, you know, those lenses were $2,000. So let me see what I could do with this $39 Piscar. So I saw it was only a doublet at the front. Well, I didn't realize that was missing the doublet at the end. It wasn't just a doublet at the front. But I knew it was similar to the uh, Kilfit lenses. So it didn't have a doublet at the end. It had nothing at the end. I went ahead and sawed off the end of the mount to bring the doublet at the front closer so I could focus at infinity on two and a quarter. And I then epoxied on part of an extension tube from Pentagon 6 onto this. Perfectly sharp, especially if you're shooting at F8 or F11. And I then devised my own telephoto lens for Pentagon 6. But I've done many of these lens adaptations, and I was influenced uh, to do that by a man who did an article in the mid-60s in um, modern photography about adapting odd lenses. And he was very detailed on how to do it. And so I then did it, and then I did these articles for the Internet on the, uh, on the Bronica Focal Plane site. So I've done a lot of those adaptations and still doing them. I still like them because I can do, you know, very interesting things. A little lens that I had bought it was an uncoated German 180-millimeter Zeiss f6.3 telephoto. And the front element part of it, all the elements were in the front. It was made for a, a Zeiss contacts. It had a focusing mount on the back. And that fit on the Zeiss contacts. There was a company by the name of Burke and James. Anyone familiar with that? From Chicago? Burke and James in the 70s was going out of business. And they took a series of ads in what was then Shutterbug ads when it was ads. And they were selling parts of lenses. Well, why were they selling parts of lenses? Because they had been adapting lenses for years buying things from German and American companies, adapting them, making and making up weird adaptations. Nobody knew that they were weird adaptations. They just sold them as a lens for this or that. But they had this little 180-millimeter front part for the contacts. So I went ahead and I epoxied on a little 39-millimeter Leica extension tube, which allowed me to mount that on Bronica, because Bronica had a screw-in mount that was Bronica with a 39-millimeter Leica screw thread. And I could take this little tiny lens, carry it around in my pocket, go into Manhattan with my Bronica, put this on, and shoot tele shots of the Chrysler building, tele shots of this, all with a little tiny lens like that. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so I, I love ingenuity. Yeah, no, I like doing that because, uh, yeah, I'd like to have... The Bronica 1,200mm Nikkor lens. It's a great lens, but that would be $5,000. I would love to have it ready-made, but instead I can take a 400mm lens, adapt it to Bronica, and then add a Bronica 2X converter, and it takes me out to 800 millimeters. you know? So these are the uh, some of the experiments that have gone on, and uh, very interesting things. And unfortunately, we don't see too many people doing this. I don't know why. Friends I had that were interested in some things like this, they're just, I don't know, maybe it's attrition. It could be a variety of factors. I think um, what we're seeing today is all these guys with the with a digital cameras that are mirrorless adapting all kinds of lenses to fit them. But um, I don't think they're actually doing any kind of uh, lens hacking so much as they're just getting adapters that are pre- pre-made to use like whatever lenses on their mirrorless cameras. And the unfortunate downside of that is it's raised the prices of lenses I'd like to obtain. I have a Leica R4 
uh, forget about it. I don't want to pay $400 for a 50-millimeter lens. You know, So that, they, they've really <clears throat> made the prices fly up on eBay like crazy. No, you're right. That the people adapting these to digital cameras have taken low-quality, practical lenses like Meritar and Victar, you know, those 50-millimeter lenses, which are normally $10 lenses, and making them $300. I mean, it's just insane. I mean, those are not good lenses. No. Or the Domaplan 50-millimeter from Meyer. it's an awful lens. It's not any good, but... Uh, you know, take it from there. My first uh, real camera that was, wasn't an Instamatic in in the early 70s was an Exact uh, 2A with that Domaplan lens on it, and uh, you know, it it taught me a lot. But they aren't not they're not great lenses by any no, stretch of imagination. No, they're not good, and uh, they are tend to oil up. The blades tend to stick, and the uh, stop down mechanism jams up. That's not a good lens. The other problem is, you talk about exact a two-way. It's a beautiful camera. Some of them were made with beautiful embossed uh, nameplates. And I have most of those exactas. I know them. Unfortunately, I have to go and I have to tell on them. The exact a two-way is NG. Now, NG to me means something not easily repairable. And what is it? It's the shutter curtain. Dries up, holes in it, pinholes, and it's got to be replaced. And I've never been able to, I shouldn't say been able, I've never done it. I would say I could replace a cloth shutter curtain, but I don't want to. It's too much work. What I found about Exacta is the following, and we deal with 35 millimeter Exacta only. Exacta 1 pre war, the curtains are still good, made of a different material. Exactor 1, always good. Exactor post-war model 1, 50-50 as to those curtains being good. Exactor 2 post-war, the curtains are generally good. Exactor model 5, which is V post-war, um, I would say 50% of the curtains are good. Now, unfortunately, we get to VX, and VX is all over the place. Do you know the difference in model VX? It's been a long time since I've played with exactors. My opinion, the best unknown exactor is the model VX with the PC contacts, not the pinhole contacts from Flash. I don't know why, but the ones with the PC contacts are always excellent. Now, that model was slightly changed to make the VX 2A. 99% of the curtains are no good. Forget it. And the VX2B, which is a different design completely, I'd say half the curtains are no good. The uh, model VX1000, which I like, probably 80% of the curtains are good. And the cheaper model of that, the VX500, maybe 80% of the curtains. But what's wrong with those curtains? These are all East German cameras, including Pentagon 6, including Primarflex. What is it? Well, somewhere in the... 50s the curtain material was changed and it's what is it it's a rubberized fabric when i first heard about that i didn't like the idea of it at all you could have old cameras where that's all right but whatever they changed it to was susceptible to static electricity and static electricity was caused by thunderstorms these cameras being just kept around with things electrical storm Static electricity came in and dried out those curtains. I don't know why, and boom, they're no good. But Exacta Model 1 from 1937, perfect. The rubber is different if you feel the curtain as opposed to the rubberized curtain in the later shutters. Isn't that weird? It is. But any of them mechanically can be fixed. I had a man by the name of Alfred Bockenheimer. He was the number one Exacta technician in the United States. He worked for the Exacta company. And the Exacta company sent me to him to fix the Primarflex. And he said, not only can I not fix it, I don't know anybody who can. <laughs> well, this man was a great technician. So I said, what do you do? He says, oh, Exacta, da, da, da. So for 20 years, maybe, he fixed Exactas for me. Fixed everyone. 
replace curtains with new curtains, put this in, whatever it is. He rebuilt cameras for me like brand new. He was just a great man. He was just what a great technician. And he went to Germany once every year or two to get as many parts as were left at the factory. Nobody had these parts. The great job he did for me was a great camera, not that uncommon, but not that common, known as the original Exacta 66. Anyone know what that is? It was a 6x6 120. Which one is it? (laughs) Good question. I don't know. The pre-war one is the predecessor of the Pentagon 6. It's a horizontal camera known as Exacta Square. People call it 66. It's not. It's exact as square. That was remade briefly in 1950, but who's ever seen that? I'd love to have it. In 1954, they came out with the vertical exact as 66, okay? It's a vertical 120 camera. Interchangeable backs, but no slide in them. And I always wanted that. Where would you find it? Who would ever see it? Well, historically, it was considered defective, completely defective. And there was a company in the Bronx that was a mail-order company called Sterling Howard. They were a camera store. They were mail-order. And they originally had those cameras for about $300. And then months later, they were like, close out $150. Nobody knew what was wrong with it. Anybody talked about that camera? It was a defective camera. Well, I didn't find out for years what the problem was. But Mr. Bockenheimer told me. But I bought an incomplete body of that Exacta 66 from a repairman on 33rd Street next to Willoughby's, an incomplete body. And I took it to Mr. Bockenheimer and I said, could you make a camera out of this? Well, we don't have the back, we don't have this, this is broken, that's broken, and so on and so forth. And uh, he said, I'll go back to the company, because he worked for Exacta in the United States, I'll see if I can find the parts. Found them all found every missing part that was missing on that camera. And he took it and rebuilt it for me perfectly. Now, what was defective about it? The camera had a wind knob like this, and people would wind it fast and strip the gears, as is known to happen. Strip the gears. Well, he told me the factory made a mistake, and they hadn't case-hardened the wind gear inside. And so the first cameras that were sold... People wound them fast, stripped the gear, they returned them all as defective. Then they discovered it's a steel gear, it has to be heated or case-hardened. They then made the replacement steel gears. But by the time they sent them to Sterling Howard, the damage was done. The reputation was junk. They put the steel gears in and they sold them all at half price. So that's what Bockenheimer did for me. Put the important gear in there, fixed the whole thing. And uh, it's a valuable collectible today, so I'm afraid to use it. But I used to take it with me in California, shoot pictures on films and all kinds of things. Work perfectly. (laughs) But there's the reputation of something destroyed for a little thing like that. Isn't that something? Yep. That's happened in many industries where the first iteration has a fault. Yeah, cars. That's right, cars. Uh, That's your best mechanical gadget, right? Think we got it? Well, we've done it then. I want to thank Sam Sherman for taking the time to sit with us in this part three. It's been a great, great pleasure having him on this program. Leslie, Mark, any thoughts? Uh, Closing thoughts? What an absolute joy to meet this man and talk with him. It was just amazing. It was a a pleasure, and on my part, I consider a privilege. Yeah, I agree. And it was interesting to me when he would get onto a topic, how my circle of interests and things... When he would I'd go, and I would, I found myself go, oh, I know this, you know, and then, but then it was just like, I may have known it, but he took it a step farther, and he knew the principles involved and all these things, and so it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking with him. I really think Sam's middle name should be Encyclopedia. <laughs> Absolutely, Samuel <laughs> Encyclopedia Sherman. That's yeah. right. 
You folks can write to us, podcast at filmphotographyproject.com. If you have any comments, if you'd like to see Sam return on the show, if you have any questions for Sam, uh, send them on over, and we'll be back. And that concludes this interview with Sam, and we hope to see you soon on the next Film Photography Podcast. Praktika Nova 1, eine echte, einäugige Spiegelreflexkamera von Pentacon. Rasch und bequem die richtige Belichtungszeit durch den neuen Einstellknopf. Das ist das PL-System, die neue Filmeinlegeautomatik. Den Film in die Kamera legen, bis zum Punkt vorziehen. Die Kamera schließen, zweimal blind auslösen und schon ist sie schussbereit. Noch schneller in der Anbindung, noch schneller in der Bedienung. Leipziger Herbstmesse 1967. Goldmedaille für Praktika Nova 1 mit PL-System vom VEB Pentacon Dresden.